Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Dan Foster, contributing editor at National Review Online, who is in for Jim Garrity today. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We do have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And the first two will deal with President Trump at the summit in Vietnam with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. First of all, most importantly, Dan, welcome back. Thanks a lot, Greg. Good to be back. As always, we have a full plate of stuff for you today. The uh, The options today were quite plentiful, but uh, the president trying to denuclearize the Korean peninsula uh, seemed like a good place to start. And the good news is actually that there's no deal, which seems like it's a disappointment. But when you consider what the president was being pressured to accept, uh, his decision is a good one. Uh, let's go to NBC News. Jonathan Allen and Brinley Bruton. Vietnam, no deal. President Donald Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un abruptly broke off their nuclear summit here Thursday, canceling a planned signing ceremony. President Trump said at a press conference later, sometimes you have to walk, and I think that was one of these times. He added, we had some options. At this time, we decided not to do any of the options. We'll see where that goes. The president indicated that the discussion stalled due to Kim's demand that all sanctions be lifted in exchange for concessions on Pyongyang's nuclear weapons program. We couldn't do that, Trump said. They were willing to give us areas, but not the ones we wanted. Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo says he's still optimistic something can get done. So based on what we're hearing, Dan, it seems like Kim Jong-un wanted an end to all economic sanctions in exchange for the promise to limit his nuclear program. So I would hope most people could see through that, and the president did. So that's a win, sort of. Yeah, on the one hand, it, you know, the advice, it seems the advice that Un was getting from his people was that this is a president who could be rolled, or at least it was worth the shot. So that's not great news. On the other hand, I have to say there is something interesting, interesting in being a loaded word, uh, about this presidency in that we get all of these kind of exp- real life social science and political science experiments um, that we never would under any other administration. So, I mean, in this case, uh, you know, how, how do you get, you know, a psychopathic, narcissistic um, dictator like Un to the table to bargain on something that is a credible and very important vital foreign policy issue for the U.S., the nuclearization of the Korean Peninsula? How do you get him to the table? Well, you flatter him and you say he's a big, powerful, strong guy and uh, you think the world of him. And so, um, that is an effective way of, of, you know, spurring these negotiations. The problem is that, you know, there's no, there hasn't been any substance uh, on, from the North Korean side. Um, but it is, you know, it is interesting to, you know, that it, the president has a point when he says that, you know, all my predecessors, um, you know, knocking me for what I'm doing on Korea never even got this far. I mean, so for what it's worth, um, that is, you know, valid and to be applauded. And as you say, Yes, we should all be relieved that the U.S. side walked away. You know, there were good adults in the room besides the president on the U.S. side. I think Secretary Pompeo is capable. Um, Mick Mulvaney is capable. Um, and so I was glad to see that there wasn't, you know, what a lot of people expected, which is that he'd take a really crappy deal and declare victory, because we know that that tends to work with about a third of Americans. Yes, it does. And uh, that may very well be what happened with Iran. I think you and I would probably agree that that is what happened. Obama wanted a legacy, and, and that's what the Iran deal was. Uh, two quick follow-ups here. First of all, you kind of already talked about it, but uh, do you think anything's been accomplished with the charm offensive? 
No, I don't. And that's kind of, I mean, we're, we're veering into bad martini territory already. I, I think the substance of the compliments that he's paid and the way he's prevaricated on the warm beer stuff is really shameful. I don't, I don't want there to be the impression that I don't think that because I very much do. But you, you nevertheless have to sort of at least watch with a, a kind of detached empirical lens um, at you know, what the actual consequences of such an approach are for no other reason than that we can learn from them in the future. I mean, I, if I were president, I wouldn't have conducted myself this way. I don't like that he has. But again, you have to, as an, as an analytical matter, at least take stock of the pros and cons of this approach. And I think, you know, one of the pros is he got him at the table. Um, the cons are numerous, though. <laughs> Absolutely. And the exit question on the good martini, if it is still good at this point in our conversation, is do you think that uh, the North Koreans read too much into the Cohen testimony and and saw Trump as more politically damaged than he actually is at this particular moment? I don't know if that's it. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of hijack your exit question a little bit because I saw an interesting take just this morning that, you know, with the China trade talks coming up, um, the the failure of the Korea summit actually puts the Chinese in a stronger position. I can't remember who made this point, but it's not mine. But I agree with it um, because the Chinese will know that the the administration doesn't want to come into another high profile, you know, set of talks in Asia and get rolled again or get no outcome. Um, so the Chinese, I think, are in. I agree, are in a you know stronger position as they head into these trade talks because again the pressure will be even higher to walk away with a deal and declare victory. All right, Dan, let's move on to our bad martini now and staying with uh, Trump and North Korea. There's uh, two prongs here, and I would argue the second prong is even worse than the first. But uh, a lot of us were startled uh, heading into the negotiations, which were Thursday over there, Wednesday evening, uh, East Coast time. NBC reported this. U.S. negotiators are no longer demanding that North Korea agree to disclose a full accounting of its nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs as part of talks this week between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. The decision to drop for now, a significant component of a potential nuclear deal, suggests a reality that U.S. intelligence assessments have stressed for months is shaping talks as they progress. And that's that North Korea does not intend to fully denuclearize, which is the goal Trump set for his talks with Kim. So that was a major demand from the U.S. that uh, the Trump administration pretty much kicked to the curb before the, the formal talks even began. And then at the press conference following the summit with no deal in the end, the president was asked, um, what have you said to Kim Jong-un about the treatment of uh, Otto Warmbier? And uh, the question had to be asked two or three times before Trump finally answered it. Uh, here's what he said at first. What happened is horrible. I really believe something very bad happened to him, and I don't think that uh, the top leadership knew about it. Okay, you don't think that, but what have you actually asked and what has actually been answered? Did he tell you that he did not, uh, did Kim Jong-un tell you? He felt badly about it. I did speak to him. He he felt very badly. He knew the case very well, but he knew it later. And, you know, you got a lot of people, a big country, a lot of people. And in those prisons and those camps, you have a lot of people. And some really bad things happened to Otto. Some really, really bad things. Why, why are you? But he tells him? me he tells me that he didn't know about it, and I will take him at his word. Take him at his word. This uh, reminds me a little bit of Helsinki, Dan, uh, when uh, the president couldn't decide who to believe between Putin and the intelligence community. Um, so, 
what do you make of this? Obviously, he's trying to stay on good terms with this guy. On the other hand, a little over a year ago, the warm beers were at the State of the Union, along with the guy who escaped on his crutches after eating dirt. And that was uh, Trump's uh, playing the bad cop. And now he's playing good cop to the point where uh, he's essentially giving Kim Jong-un the benefit of the doubt and how a guy who was basically returned to the U.S. uh, in a comatose state was treated in North Korea. I think it's contemptible, and I think we should be clear about that. And, you know, it is right up there with Helsinki. Um, You know, there there is an argument that you'll hear from some of his more apologetic partisans that, um, you know, this is the way that diplomacy is done with distasteful countries all the time. And they'll point to Saudi Arabia and previous administrations or Iran, you know, in the case of some very shameful things that the Obama foreign policy team and State Department in particular did uh, in the Middle East just to, you know, keep curry favor with um, Iran. And and even uh, furthermore, in countries like Venezuela that had extensive dealings with Iran, there's evidence now that the Obama administration took pressure off of Venezuela at the end um, to pacify Iran during those talks. So the partisans will point to stuff like that. And it's true as far as it goes that doing diplomacy with distasteful and even evil countries can sometimes require selective silence. But that's the key, silence. Um, There's a big difference between looking the other way because you've made a calculation that a particular ally is important to our strategic long-term interests and, you know, showering praise and compliments and talking about what a good, smart, normal, and well-adjusted guy Kim Jong-un is. You know, the, the, the idea that you know, a high-profile American hostage was not consuming at least a little bit of Un's attention. I suppose it could be true. He's a weird guy, but it seems unlikely. And in the very least, you shouldn't be letting him off the hook that way. So, yeah, it's deeply, deeply shameful. And the last thing I'll say about it is that I really do think this whole scourge of whataboutism um, is going to have some long-term consequences on the right's ability to do things rhetorically in the future. And a perfect example is, the Bernie Sanders stuff. I mean, he's starting to get vetted on his foreign policy stuff in a way that he wasn't two years ago. And we know that his taste in, you know, foreign uh, allies in the 1980s was pretty much the same as Carlos the Jackals. You know, he was writing right. letters. To, he was writing letters to the Queen asking them to treat the IRA terrorists more nicely. And he was apologizing for the Sandinistas and um, all kinds of, uh, you know, other you know shady parties. So, um when he when he gets called on to do something like condemn the Maduro regime in Venezuela and he prevaricates and is wishy-washy on it, I think that the sting of that and the price that he pays for that is much, much less because of the place that the president has taken our conversation about foreign policy and bad actors in particular. All right, Dan, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And uh, Bernie Sanders, we know he's in, as are a handful of other Democratic senators for the 2020 campaign. You got Klobuchar and Gillibrand and Harris and Booker, and I'm probably forgetting somebody else. But uh, other people are getting in as well. A lot of folks watching to see if Joe Biden finally makes the jump. And now more people getting excited certainly on the left, about the possibility of Beta O'Rourke getting into this thing. He's officially announced 
that he's not going to run for Senate in Texas again in this next cycle. Dallas Morning News. Beta O'Rourke has decided not to run for U.S. Senate next year against Texas Republican incumbent John Cornyn and likely will announce a campaign for president soon. People close to the former El Paso congressman told the Dallas Morning News. Numerous people close to O'Rourke said they expect him to announce his presidential campaign within weeks. O'Rourke on Wednesday wouldn't reveal his political plans except to say he has made up his mind. Quote, Amy and I have made a decision about how best we can serve our country, he said. In an exclusive statement to the Dallas Morning News, we are excited to share it with everyone soon. So I'm guessing that means he's going back to the private sector, Dan. Um, <laughs> so a lot of Texas Democrats are actually upset about this. Uh, Congresswoman Edie Bernice Johnson had really wanted him to run against John Cornyn. Other Texas Democrats did, too, thinking that was their best shot at possibly picking up that seat. Uh, perhaps uh, O'Rourke realized that going up against a more polarizing Republican like Ted Cruz and still coming up short in a blue wave year might not mean that he's got a very good chance of beating John Cornyn. So what do you make of a guy who, while popular and came closer than most Democrats, but still lost his Senate race, is now about to run for president? Yeah, I just I love it because it's here's a guy who looks at a record number of women and people of color uh, seeking the Democratic nomination. And he says, actually, you know, it should be another, it should be another white guy. Um, I just it's, so there's a little bit of Schadenfreude, you know, on that front. Watching him decide that he needs to mansplain, you know, the future of the Democratic Party to the likes of Kamala Harris and uh, and Tulsi Gabbard and others. Um, so it's funny from that point of view. But yeah, I, I just I really don't get it. It speaks to something in the the left's or a certain part of the left psyche um, that they love this guy so much. I mean, his main accomplishment is. He didn't get the crap kicked out of him <laughs> by what the third least popular Republican in the world, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe the second, um, and and he didn't get completely blown out. I really don't get it. I would love it if he got in the race, you know. And I I, I try not to say things like that so much these days because the careful what you wish for factor is so high. Um, but I would like it if he got in the race because I think it would clarify a lot of things about what's sincere uh, in the Democrat or the progressive wing of the Democratic Party sort of reorientation towards identity politics and what of that is really just posturing and marketing. I think it would clarify a lot of those questions. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you have to assume that the reason the media effectively put Beta O'Rourke on the cover of Tiger Beat for a year was because he was running against Ted Cruz and they would have put anybody who was unopposed, essentially, in the Democratic primary uh, up against Ted Cruz uh, in, in a way to try and make that race more interesting. So maybe they haven't escaped the white white savior complex that they criticize everybody else for, for having. Maybe they're in the grips of it themselves. OK, but here's the question. Since there are so many women in this race and now there are multiple people of color in this race and who knows who else is going to get in here. Does that potentially fragment the people who are interested mostly in identity politics and leave an avenue open for a guy like O'Rourke? Oh, for sure. And I, I try and stay out of the business of making political predictions um, about the Democratic nominee because of that dynamic. I think it's very, very closely going to parallel the 2016 GOP um, nomination process. And that's exactly what we saw happen there. It'd be interesting to see if you get some fringy person who comes out at the end of it with something like 30 or 40 percent of all the votes cast. Um, you know, things could get very interesting. Things could get very bad. It's certainly not going to be boring. Um, but I think that's definitely a possibility that 
you know, either a Biden or a uh, or or a Beto or a, uh, you know, potentially even a Bernie um, could slip through in a conversation where everybody else is talking about trigger warnings and microaggressions. What do you think Beto learned here in his uh, wandering of the West uh, to figure out where he was going to spend the rest of his life? I couldn't even begin to describe <laughs> that fertile and, and beautiful mind. <laughs> we were joking beforehand that uh, how he would handle North Korea, but uh, you, you said perhaps a bicycle tour. Yeah, yeah he would do a, a bicycle tour through the mountainous countryside and really get to know the Korean people. What kinds of leather do they prefer to put in their stews? <laughs> <laughs> on that note dan it's always great to have you thanks for your time today and we'll talk to you soon great. thanks daniel foster of national review i'm greg Columbus of radio america thanks for being with us today jim garrity will be back on friday tune in then for the next three martini lunch